It is a uh, pleasure to get to do this this morning. For the handful of you that uh, might possibly be staring at me trying to figure out who I am, uh, my name is Luke Fox, and I'm currently serving in the role of interim youth director. Uh, I come to you all with my wife, Samantha, and then we got two little boys, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old who are uh, intentionally on the other side of the building right now. Uh, We've been working our way through the book of Mark, and I'm going to pick right up where we left off. So we are at the end of Mark chapter 3. We're now in verses 31 to 35. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brother and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And uh, let us pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to come into this place and to worship you. We have worshiped you with our voices, and now let us worship with our ears, our hearts, our minds. Please open our, our ears, our hearts, and our minds right now. I ask that you would speak through me, speak in spite of me, whatever you need to do in this moment, so that we might hear what we need to hear. May the things that are said in this place this morning benefit us, and may they glorify you. Amen. All right, I want to start off with a joke this morning, and uh, I I tried this on my wife a couple of weeks ago, and she did not laugh. Uh, I don't know why, but I'm going to try it on you anyway. So there's a a Catholic priest and a Baptist pastor and a Jewish rabbi. They're having lunch together, and and, and they start talking about controversial topics just as friends, just to kind of see what each one thinks about each topic. And uh, they get to the point in the conversation where they begin talking about when life begins. Is it conception? Is it the first heartbeat? When does life begin? And the Baptist pastor quickly jumped in and, and said, uh, you know, no way we can know for sure, but life begins at conception. That's what I'm going with. I don't want to take any chances on this matter. Life begins at conception. The Catholic priest chimes in and says, well, I suppose I'm not inclined to argue with you. We discourage our people from even using birth control. So, uh, so sure, we'll go with that. And they both look to the rabbi to see what he thinks, and he takes a moment, and, and then he says, when the family dog dies and the kids move out of the house, that is when life begins. <laughs> Got a much better reaction than it did at home. <laughs> so in our, in our text here, Jesus has moved out of the house, and yet we have his family here for one reason or another. Some different ideas about why they're there, and, and I want to discuss those today. But first, just a, a quick note or two. Uh, no major theological point here, just some, something interesting to point out. Uh, notice that Joseph is not present. In fact, you won't see him again. And in fact, if you've been paying attention, you haven't seen him yet either. He's not in the book of Mark at all. He's in Matthew and Luke as part of the birth narrative. And then in Luke, he shows up in the one story that we have from Jesus' adolescent years, where he sneaks off to the temple. And, and then from there, we don't see Joseph anymore. And there are, there's a lot of speculation as to why, but the truth is we don't know. Uh, and again, no big point that I want to offer here. Just an interesting tidbit, I think, about how each gospel uh, has its own individual flavor, its own intended audience, its own social context. 
And this can be challenging for some of us sometimes. We want to kind of uh, smash all four Gospels together into one uh, big long story, and, and that, can, can, that can present some challenges. Uh, but I have always felt like that independent flavor in each Gospel is part of what makes them so beautiful. Just a, a thought for the morning. Uh, another interesting note here uh, that does maybe have a minor impact on how we picture this scene in our text today, uh, the word brother in this text is, is hard to say for certain exactly what it means, because like in our world today, it didn't have to be literal. See, I have only one biological sibling, and it is a sister, uh, yet I still have many brothers. I tend to use the term uh, primarily when talking about uh, my, my brothers and sisters in ministry, people who uh, have been by my side over the last uh, 15 years in, in different churches that I will call and, and lean on, and they'll do the same. They are my brothers and sisters. So we use the term sometimes in a way that is not literal, and that was the case uh, for, for the Israelites during this time as well. Uh, so this word is um, maybe better fit to describe all kin. They're, his brothers may very well have been there. We know that Jesus had several half-brothers, uh, but that may not have been it. This may also include aunts and uncles and cousins. It's, it's a larger term, perhaps, uh, than, than just his literal brothers and sisters. Just something to think about as we picture the scene here. So now let's go ahead and dive into our text. Why was Jesus' family there in the first place? There are two prevailing theories about this, and we don't know for sure which one is true. So I want to go ahead and offer both of them to you and see if I can give a nice little take-home point for each one. There are some who think that Jesus' family were there to see if they could share in his fame. There for the wrong reason of trying to step into the spotlight that Jesus has now procured. You see, Jesus is, is causing some problems. You might look at the text in the, the last couple weeks that we've been looking at and, and say, why would anyone want to step in and steal that spotlight? And the Pharisees are already upset with him. We've already been told they are plotting against him, trying to get rid of him. But in the midst of that, he is also soaring in popularity with the common people. He is healing people, and he's doing it so well that crowds have gathered and people are pushing through, trying to get just close enough to even touch him. And as the crowd swoon over him, it's not hard to imagine that the people close to him may have wanted in on the spotlight a little bit too. I mean, how many music artists or athletes uh, do we know who see them having a, a friend or a family member as a manager and hear the stories of how poorly that goes, or even just a group of friends that, uh, that follow them around and try to mooch off of their fame. These people have, have earned no fame on their own accord, and yet they still want to live that lifestyle that the fame brings with. Perhaps that's why Jesus' family is here today. And there's a lot that we could say in, in this moment about the dangers of material greed, and, and I'm not one to be afraid of that topic but today I want to focus more on the spiritual aspect of this. If they were there to try to put themselves at the top, at a place where they did not belong, then in doing so, they absolutely lost sight of what was really important in the moment. They were so focused on that spotlight that they failed to even realize the spiritual significance of what God is doing in that moment through Jesus' ministry. And in doing so, they failed to be able to gain from what God was up to in that moment. Oscar Wilde once put it this way, I can resist everything except temptation. 
The, the characters of this story have perhaps given in to one of the most dangerous, if not subtle, of all temptations. It's that need for affection and attention. We were designed with that need, made to be together. It's part of, of who God made us to be. And yet, it is in our social relationships that we often find the biggest obstacles in our relationship with God. See, temptation shows up in all kinds of shapes and sizes. I, I heard it explained this way one time for this particular temptation. I was at a conference in a room full of pastors who might be prone to this trap. The speaker told us to uh, think about our spiritual journey as an ascent up a mountain, climbing to get closer and closer to God. That's pretty standard imagery. There was nothing uh, new about that idea. We use it all the time. Then he said to picture yourself in a line with other Christians. Let's say this is a a narrow trail heading up this mountain towards God, uh, and so only one person at a time, single file. Where are you in this line based on how close you are to God? Are you up at the front of the line leading the way and help guiding the path, or are you maybe falling behind somewhere with people dragging you along, or even, God forbid, walking the wrong direction? Overall, the people in this room we're proud to say that they were the ones at the front, leading the way. No doubt some of you would probably say the same. Then the speaker said something interesting that maybe somebody in here needs to hear today. He said the worst place that you can possibly be in that journey up the mountain is at the very front of that line. You see, at the front of the line, you are more likely to look back and feel good about where you've come when you see how far behind others are. Too much temptation to look back at others with scorn, at the fact that they're not in the same place as you. It's possible that maybe this has uh, happened for, for Jesus' family. You see, from, uh, from the middle of the pack, or even from the back, we have the ability to, uh, to look ahead and be guided by the people who are in front of us and to see that going a little bit farther can, in fact, be done. But from the front of the line, we're just too tempted to be proud of where we are. Maybe this has happened for them. Maybe they're they're trying to seize this moment and be the ones at the top who finally get the chance to look down at others. They've fallen into that temptation of of prioritizing uh, human affection and attention in their lives. And in doing so, they have faltered in their journey toward God when they could have been using this amazing moment to be getting closer to God instead They have stopped moving forward. I hope and pray that that would not happen to you and I, that we would not stop moving forward, that we would not look back at others with pride at how far we've come, but that we would keep our eyes on the prize and never cease in that journey of growing closer to God. Now, I think that first point is true, regardless of how we interpret this message, this passage. Uh, But I will tell you there is another way of seeing this passage, and and I tend to agree with this second option that says that his family was there to disrupt his ministry. They are there to take him home. This is, in fact, an intervention. They are worried about his safety. Jesus was not the first person to be crucified. There were crosses all over the Roman landscape with people hanging from them who had gone against the authorities. His family knew what could come, and, and they are worried for his safety. 
Our text says that they, they send for him. In the Greek, this term has a negative connotation. And then even more importantly, perhaps, we have the idea that they are, are outside. They did not go in to talk to Jesus himself. They are outside. And, and I think that this has incredible symbolic value. See, in this moment, they are not in there with Jesus being a part of what God is doing. They are outside, not connected, not trusting, not believing. Can anybody in here, and you can go ahead and be honest with us this morning, can anybody in here raise a hand and say that they've had one of those moments in their life where they too are not connected and not trusting what God is doing? <laughs> yeah, guilty as charged. It's tempting for us to blame his family for not being on board, for not diving right in and being sold out for the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing for it. And how lucky are they to have had Jesus as a family member? It is a mind-boggling honor, and yet here they are, missing the point. They are out of the loop on what God is doing in the world. This is not a flattering text for his family. It would be easy for us to sit here today and say, what fools? But I ask you, how many times in each of our lives would God have had the right to say such things of us? Fools who know of my guidance, but insist on doing things their own way. Fools who know of my love, but still spew out hate at one another. Fools who confess me as Lord, and yet still act like they have no power over the sin in their lives. Fools who have been learning about me for decades, but still don't know me. How many times would God have had the right to say such things of us? I turned 39 last week. I'm doing the math here. I'm pretty sure this would be every day of my life. Uh, and so I'm doing the math here trying to figure out how many uh, days that would have been. And, and I, I can't figure it out. I can't do the math here for myself. So I'm certainly not even going to try for some of you. Uh, but, but here's the fun part. This isn't where their story ends. See, Jesus' family goes on to redeem themselves. We see as Pastor Nathan Pastor Nathan uh, talked about last week, we, uh, we see his mother playing a special role throughout the rest of his life, and especially during his death and resurrection. We see uh, two of his brothers, especially one for sure, James, playing a crucial role in the early church, one of the, the pillars of the church that was established in Jerusalem after Jesus' death. And uh, he's acknowledged, uh, I don't know if you know this, scholars have, there's quite a bit of debate about who the authors are of many of our New Testament texts. Uh, the book of James really is not one of them. Most scholars, it's a relative consensus uh, that the writer of the book of James is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, so when we look at, at this text, what we have here, this is not a flattering text, but these are not villains. These are just people. People who don't get it right now and are in need of some more time, in need of a second chance. Lucky for them, they worship a God of second chances. A God who redeems, a God who takes the filthy and makes it clean again. There's an old gospel song that puts it this way. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. He said, it says, but now it seems that there's no way out and you're going under. God's proven time and time again, he'll take care of you and he'll do it again. He'll do it again. If you'll just take a look at where you are now and where you've been, well, hasn't he always come through for you? He's the same now as then. You may not know how, you may not know when, but he'll do it again. By the grace of God, 
these misguided and misdirected family members who are outside of what God is doing in that moment. They are offered grace. They are redeemed and given the chance to set their path right. He's done it before. He did it for them. And if anybody in here needs to hear it today, he will do it again. Now I get to uh, Jesus' response. I've used a lot of my time already, so I'll keep this fairly short. Uh, some see Jesus' response where he, he says, these are my family. Uh, they see this as an example of how Jesus could be harsh sometimes. These are harsh words about his family. Uh, the reminder that, that Jesus is not always uh, the, the flowers and sunshine and rainbows that we sometimes make him out to be, that he was not afraid of harsh words and sometimes offering tough love. And uh, while I do appreciate that idea of a Jesus who offers tough love, uh, I'm not sure that I see that in this text. When I read this text, I don't see Jesus excluding his own family. I see him making his family bigger. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this text, put it this way, It is a great comfort to all true Christians that they are dearer to Christ than mother, brother, or sister. Is that not beautiful? That Jesus looks out over this crowd and confesses that he loves them like family. Not even like family. He says, these are my family. What is interesting to me, hard for me to wrap my head around, is how early on in Jesus' ministry he says this. Because this crowd of people sitting before him, they didn't even know who he was. In the book of Mark, uh, Jesus is very quiet about it. The, the demons have figured it out, and he tells them to be quiet. He heals people, and they want to go shout it out on the mountaintop, and he tells them, no, be quiet. Uh, he is very quiet about who he is at this point in his ministry. This crowd does not know who Jesus is. There have been no councils gathered to uh, argue and discuss the nature of Jesus. There are no creed for them to affirm at this point. This is just a crowd of hurting, hurting, broken, and largely impoverished people who have been stepped on and spit on for years and who needed someone to stand up and say, you are loved, you have value. Today, Jesus is still saying those words to us, that you are loved, you have value, you are dearer to Jesus than even his own flesh and blood. That, my friends, is worth taking home with you. That is why we don't look back at how far we've come, but instead, out of gratitude and devotion, we strive forward to get as close to God as we possibly can. And that is where I was originally going to say amen. As I was preparing this sermon, I, I felt convicted to leave you with one more thought. Building off of this idea uh, of Jesus taking the moment to tell this crowd that they are loved, um, I'm going to tell you, I, I grew up with a father who, who loved me dearly. Uh, there wasn't any question about it. He was very involved in my life and always there and, and present and, and, and was just an amazing father. But we didn't say those words to each other a whole lot. Now, uh, thank goodness, he's still around and we have the opportunity to say those words all the time. We do on a regular basis. But it wasn't until I was an adult that we really got comfortable with expressing our emotions and saying those words to each other. And, and I don't hold this against my father. He didn't have much of an example of how to express fatherly love. In fact, he has no recollection of his biological father ever saying, I love you to him. He didn't know the man. He never saw him again after second grade, and I don't think any of his subsequent stepfathers 
ever told him those words either. He was far more likely to be beaten by an angry drunk than he was to ever hear the words, I love you. And so he did everything that he could to make sure that I did not have to grow up the way that he did. And from the stories I hear, I am quite glad. Thanks be to God. But it took us a while to be able to express those emotions. Now I have two sons of my own, and I tell them every single day how much I love them. And I will do it until they can't take it anymore, and I will do it again. I do not want there to be any question in their minds, even as they age and they go through stages where we don't even like each other that much. I've worked with teenagers my entire adult life. I know those days are coming. But they will still know that I love them anyway. The reason why I tell you all that is to ask you this. Is there someone in your life who needs to hear you say it today? You are loved. You are valued. You are cherished by the very Lord Jesus himself. Receive that love today. Do me a favor and give it away too. Tell someone today. Tell them that God loves them. That's great. That's part of what we are supposed to be doing, letting the world know how much God loves them. But it might be a little better start if we tell them that we love them too. Amen and amen.